How do people change? I think that's one of the most pressing and universal questions for human beings and I have to say it has been one of the most important questions in my life. Personally, how can I overcome my besetting sins, my my personal weaknesses? How can I become more like the person I wish I was, more like the person I'm called to be by God? How can I change? It's actually been a very important underlying question um, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, If you're a regular here, you will remember the church in Corinth, frankly, was a pretty dysfunctional place. It was riven with divisions. They were obsessed with a cult of celebrity. Um, Now, in chapter 5, We've started to see some other problems that are going on. Here Here um, is a clear case of incest in the church. Later on we're going to find rich people abusing the poor in the church. Men using prostitutes, unhealthy attitudes to marriage and so on and so on and so on. Frankly this church, the church in Corinth that Paul addresses was a messy church by any standards and how are they going to change an extremely common Christian answer to that is that we change through unconditional love I hear that a lot in today's world and actually I believe that most profoundly Only relationships of true love really change us for the better. A policeman can stop us breaking the law. But actually only someone who loves us can really touch our hearts in a way that we can start to be changed. And I do believe true love is unconditional Shakespeare memorably put it, didn't he? Love is not love which alters when it alterations find. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. And I believe the Bible portrays the love of God for his people in exactly that way. It is an ever-fixed mark. It looks on tempests and is not shaken. God's love for his people is unconditional. It is absolutely committed to us. Indeed, I believe it is more unconditional than most of us realise, frankly. But you see, unconditional is not the same as uncritical. Indeed, if you tease out how God's love is worked out amongst his people, you'll see that God's love for us is actually a tough, passionate commitment to our eternal good. 
God's love is unfailing. But actually, it is extremely uncomfortable at times. The writer of the Hebrews, for instance, um, tells us that we should endure hardship as a discipline from God. And then he reminds us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. In fact, in fact he says it's an illegitimate father who, who doesn't, uh, doesn't give his son any di- discipline. When tough situations come your way, recognise that this is the mark of true love, fatherly love, it, unbreakable love, in one sense unconditional love, but not comfortable love. God's love is not the soppy, insipid, disnified schmaltz that is so often peddled as love today. It is strong, passionate, unconditional, indeed so unconditional, he will stop at nothing to achieve for us what, what the old Puritan Richard Sibbs used to describe as our main good, our ultimate good. Our eternal good. The salvation of our souls. And that sort of love, you see, that God promises us, comforting and uncomfortable though that may be, is the love that his people are to emulate albeit imperfectly, albeit inadequately very often. But it is that kind of love that God's people are to practice with one another. Unconditional love, true love. One book describes it very vividly as bold love. Love that's really committed to us. Which brings us to uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 uh, reveals that actually true commitment to one another, to our main good, can be very, very uncomfortable at times. Paul's already begun to demonstrate his love for these Corinthians. Do you remember two weeks ago, if you were here, um, how at the end of chapter 4, he describes himself as a father to them. He, he, he is emotionally engaged with them. He loves them. He, he stands alongside them. He nurtures them. We had seven characteristics of his fatherly care for them and one of them was that he was prepared to confront them and now here we find him describing the most painful duty that true love sometimes has to perform in the church it's called excommunication look at verse 13 expel the wicked man from among you. Now because we very rarely deal with this subject and because it's vitally important um, 
I'm going to try to, 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 to uh, at least in very brief outline, bring in some more of the balance of what the New Testament says about how we do deal with one another's sins as, uh, as God's people, how we do relate to one another in the context of sin and failure. Um, and sadly, in some ways, that means we're probably not going to give as much attention to this chapter as we uh, might like to. And what I decided whatever we did would be inadequate to our task. I even contemplated um, uh, stretching what we had to say over two weeks or more and um, I have decided against that. So let me just try to introduce you. Um, using this passage as our central location but our, not our only location to how the New Testament says we should love one another as sinners. Let me ask a few questions then. When, when a sin occurs amongst us, how do we decide what discipline is required for that sin? And let me suggest to you that the New Testament sets out three main criteria that uh, answer, help us to answer that question in uh, any individual case. And the first criterion is the seriousness of the sin. How serious is this sin? All sins are not equal. All sins do equally expose the fact that we are sinners in need of the forgiveness of Christ that he won for us through his death on the cross. In that sense, all sins are equal. But in another profound sense, they are not equal. They do different amounts of damage to us and to people around us. And some sins, frankly, will be just minor. The New Testament tells us again and again and again, overlook those 1 Peter 4 verse 8, for instance, says, love covers over a multitude of sins. And that sentiment is found all over the place in the New Testament. We are to bear with one another. Be patient with one another. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love covers up. But other sins are more serious and must be addressed. They will be dealt with in a measured and a patient way. The New Testament has numerous calls to admonish and to warn and even to rebuke one another. But always, it says, with gentleness and patience and humility. And then there are some sins that are so serious that they lead us pretty rapidly towards the most serious sanction that the Bible commands, excommunication. That is, refusing to acknowledge a person as a member of the church or, the, or refusing to acknowledge that they are functioning as a Christian. We continue to hope they may be a Christian. We'll see more of that in a, in a minute. But we refuse to treat them 
as someone who is now behaving as a bona fide Christian. That's what's happening in, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. It appears that this man has set up um, home with his father's wife, perhaps as the New Living Translation suggests, his stepmother, not his, not his biological mother, um, and perhaps too his father has died. But this is still incest. Verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Put out of your fellowship. The New Testament actually describes three main kinds of sin which may result in, uh, uh, in excommunication. One of them is the one before us, gross um, um, uh, sexual sin. A second one is serious false teaching, which leads people astray in a serious way. For instance, 2 John verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. False teaching which denies the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I don't mean minor differences that lots of Christians have between, amongst the, uh, between themselves, but, 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 but major differences. That leads people astray, can lead people to hell. It's very serious. And then the third category... Perhaps a surprising one. It's divisiveness amongst God's people. Titus chapter 3 verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. Persistent divisiveness tears the church, the body of Christ, apart. And Paul says it must not be tolerated. Frankly, we need not think that is a comprehensive list. As if someone who is sexually faithful to his wife but habitually beats her should uh, not not be treated um, uh, uh, with similar opprobrium. But it gives us an idea of the main dimensions of serious sin that the New Testament is thinking about. Serious failures in our duties towards other people, particularly sexual sin. Serious failures to uphold uh, biblical teaching, especially if they're teaching false teaching and therefore leading people dangerously astray. And serious uh, offences against the body which puts people at odds with one another, tears the body of Christ apart. That's not quite the perspective we had. But that's the perspective the New Testament has. How serious is the sin, we ask? Is it tiny to be overlooked? Does it require a quiet word? Is it dangerous and serious? 
And then the second criterion is penitence. Did you notice in that Titus 3 verse, um, Paul advises warning a divisive person twice. Give them opportunity to see the errors of their way. We don't rush to sanctions always, immediately. Repentance is possible. Forgiveness is obligatory to those who are penitent. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus describes the process of dealing with uh, uh, a sin. And he says a person needs to have several opportunities to see the error of their ways. First he says, show the person their error, just the two of you. And he says, if he listens to you, you've won him over. It's sorted, it's done. If not, take another person um, as, a, as a sort of mediator. If again that person is impenitent, then take it to the church, he says, and only then should it get to the full extent of perhaps separating that person from from the fellowship. Of course, not all sins. Jesus is not implying that every little sin should go through that whole process. There may may come a time, even after we've had a quiet word with someone and they just haven't seen it, that we say, okay, for now I'll leave it. But we have to recognise that actually sometimes even quite moderate sins at first that are just not recognised can grow and grow and grow into a serious problem. The angry person who simply offloads the responsibility for that on everybody else and in time entrenches themselves in an angry, aggressive way of dealing with others. On the other hand, quite serious sins. If a person is penitent, if they are seriously working, sincerely working on dealing with those, may be treated with great gentleness. Is the person penitent? One Corinthians five. It seems that. The church has uh, tolerated, possibly even applauded as a great uh, blow for um, uh, liberated living, the behaviour of this person. More likely, he is just a rather high status person that they don't even contradict. And uh, this has become a settled pattern. A man has his father's wife, they are living together and now as man and wife. The moment for penitence has passed and Paul says that must issue in action. And then the third criterion to apply. We're trying to think through how a situation needs to be dealt with. Is the circle of influence of that sin I mentioned Matthew 18 just a a moment ago. Jesus advises a person who's been sinned against to go and talk it through just the two of you. It's just between the two of you. Keep it that way. Every week there are interactions like that that happen in this church. 
That's the way that normally these things are dealt with. And brother and sister are reconciled and no one else need know. Some sins, though, in their very nature, are public. For instance, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul describes how Peter, the apostle even, behaved badly in public in uh, uh, one of the churches. And Paul says in uh, Galatians 2.11, I opposed him to his face. The sin was public and it needed to be dealt with publicly. In verse uh, 1 of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul indicates that uh, um, even surrounding pagans may be shocked. You know, shacking up with another woman is not a private act. People will see it. The world around will see it, as well as the wider church. And it's in response to that that he insists the church as a whole in the next few verses, must formally gather and must collectively and publicly dissociate themselves from this man. What's the circle of influence of this sin? It needs to be dealt with in the same circle as it's presently influencing just the two of you? Just the two of you sorted out. Half a dozen of you? Those people need to see that, that how it is being resolved. The whole church? The wider community? Some sort of more public repudiation of a serious sin is necessary. Three questions to consider then. And we will find in practice that we overlook a thousand and one minor injuries because of love. We deal privately with numerous other um, uh, difficulties because of love. Only occasionally are sins so serious, so persistent and so public that they need to be dealt with as they, as Paul advocates in 1 Corinthians 5. Second question to ask. Who administers the discipline? I hope you've already noticed the answer to that. We do. Collectively. Private sins are just dealt with the, by the people uh, concerned. I remember hearing one um, uh, senior minister once explaining how if anybody on a Sunday morning came up to uh, uh, talk to him about how someone else had upset, uh, hurt or upset them, he immediately would grab them by the sleeve, march them over to the other person and say, you've got a conversation you need to have and then walk away. Nothing to do with him. Yet, they just need to sort it out amongst themselves. 
here in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul very clearly has a role as a leader, doesn't he? There is a role for leaders. I have already, verse 3, passed judgment on the one who did this. But he repeatedly, repeatedly asserts that he can exercise that role actually not because he's some senior apostolic figure. He could easily say that. But because he's actually part of the church. Three times he says, I am with you, my virtual presence at least is there amongst you. Twice he says it in verse 3. Even though I am not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit, he says, and I've already passed this judgment on the one who did this, as if I were present. When he says I'm I'm with you in spirit, you know, that's a sort of English idiom for saying, oh, I'm thinking of you. Um, he's not saying that, he's saying something more profound. He's saying that actually, I am spiritually bound to you. We are part of the same spiritual body. I am speaking this to you, brothers and sisters in Corinth, although I am absent, because I am part of that church. I am united to you in that way. I founded that church. I've lived amongst you. I am with you in spirit. There is no distant ecclesiastical court to sort out these, uh, uh, these problems. There's not even, finally, a private elders meeting to sort out these problems. Finally, God's people must do it together. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. The whole church has been affected by this sin. The whole church must deal with it as God's people together. In my, my time at Magdalen Road here, we've never actually quite got to this degree of uh, public rebuke. It happened um, more than once in my um, previous church as a result of um, uh, public sins, serious sins by uh, by church members, where the church had to gather formally and agree that that person. Um, could no longer be treated as a bona fide member of the church. We never quite got to that for a thousand and one different reasons, mainly associated with the precise nature of the sins that we deal with, have been more private or less part of the core life of the church and more on the periphery and therefore not associated with the church. But I have to say, as I've read and reflected this week on 1 Corinthians 5, I wondered whether we shouldn't have been sometimes just a little bit more public, a little bit more open, gathered together and corporately saying, no, this is not acceptable. Because, you see, though with the best will in the world, we often want to keep these things as as quiet as they can, as we can. 
The reality is that if relatively public sins are dealt with privately, tittle-tattle occurs. And I know some of you will be aware we have not been sinless in that area. Who administers discipline? Actually, we do. Leaders have a role, a responsibility. But in the end, it is the body as a whole who agree now this behaviour is wrong. And what is the purpose of discipline? Final question. One purpose the Apostle makes uh, very clear in verse 6. The church has a duty to maintain her purity, not her perfection. We all sin in numerous ways. But to maintain a consistent commitment to dealing with sin. And if she does not do that, trouble grows. Don't you know, he says in verse 6, that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? One sinfully tolerated sin can lead to growing problems in any church. But the purpose I want to focus on this morning is this. The focus, purpose of this discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 is emphatically for the, the main good of the person concerned. You see that? Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Those are shocking words, aren't they? Hand this man over to Satan. I think the apostle means hand this man over to the realm of Satan, that is the wider world. They cannot claim to be living in the realm of Jesus, which is the church. They must be publicly acknowledged as being in the realm where their behaviour puts them. But look at the aim. The aim is so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. And then, uh, then more, more emphatically, so that they may be saved in the end. See, the greatest disservice that we can do to a person uh, is to allow them to live in ways that, such as are described in 1 Corinthians 5 and let them convince themselves that they're still okay with God. They are not okay with God. They will find that out for themselves one day on the last day and that will be a terrible thing on the last day. They must see their predicament 
for their eternal good. It would be a terrible indictment on a church if a church in fact tolerated gross sin and gently and, and, and calmly guided a person into hell. Confronting sin sometimes is true love, is real love, is unconditional love. We change through that. We can be restored through that. 2 Corinthians uh, describes a person who has um, responded in a very penitent way after being disciplined by the church. And Paul says, welcome him back. And many scholars suggest, maybe that's the same man. The church got his act together and said, no, you cannot behave like this. And saw true repentance on that man returning. I have to say, my experience has been that that process is often slow. We do not live in a culture that encourages that process to move in a healthy way. But I do see it. Remember a man that I knew years and years ago who had to endure that discipline and I'd lost touch with him. I just happened to come across as the um, internet does these sorts of things, a blog that he had written. And he was functioning again in a church. And the blog was about the extraordinary glory of repentance and forgiveness. I don't know his story, but I was so encouraged. Because the last time I saw him, the church was excommunicating him. Some of you here are perhaps the zealous type. You're all ready with your um, sharp word at the end of the service to that person who sinned against you. And you're going to go into battle on this one. Let me say to you, love people. That's why I didn't want to just look at 1 Corinthians 5 in isolation. Because it can give the wrong, wrong impression. Passages like this can only be read in the context of the passionate, forgiving, patient, gentle love that is presented to Christians as the ideal again and again and again in the New Testament. You zealots, love your neighbour before you speak to your neighbour about their sin. But I do think that more of us actually have a rather superficial, schmaltzy view of what it means to be a community of love. I do think that more of us um, 
Perhaps because we're scared of conflict. Perhaps for a thousand and one other reasons. Think, just let's just be nice to one another and not worry about anything else. In the end, that's not true love. That doesn't have the depth of love about it that God gives to us. We may be nicer, may be slightly more comfortable, but it won't have the glory of being a community committed to one another in a profound way. So let me ask you, are you pursuing one another's main good? Is that our focus? Is that our desire? Is that our commitment? Or is actually your relationship with other people in the church something much more superficial and much more weak and much less like the love of God?